Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We're going to chat books again. We are indeed. How's your reality? My reality, I'm very down to earth, unless I'm on a boogie board high on a wave. Well, let me take you beyond your reality. Did you know that all that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream? David, that sounds like a quote from somewhere. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Thank you. But it sort of fits neatly into my novel today. Well, our novel, because you've read the book as well. I have, I have. And um, the the novel is Iris and the, the Tiger... And the author is Leanne Hall. So, Leanne, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, to begin with adolescent fiction, so let's establish the core of this novel and, of course, the genre. What are the elements we've got here that we're dealing with? Uh, So the elements we've got is the book is about a 12-year-old Australian girl called Iris who is set a fairly unfair task by her parents. Isn't that always the case yeah. in this genre? Yeah. Bloody parents. Well, I actually I found it really hard to write difficult parents or mean parents or parents that weren't being fair. But in order to make the story interesting, you really kind of have to put your your twelve year old through something. So I thought all parents were mean. Well, at, at that age, maybe it does seem at, that at way. That age. Yeah. And then, well, she has to head off somewhere. She's sent overseas on her own. Uh, for only the second time overseas and the first time on her own, to Spain to meet a great aunt that she has never met before. So this brings up these notions of dislocation, identity, which are all essential. Yeah, it always helps to take your kid away from home and set them out on an adventure without their parents um, to really watch them change and develop and grow. Uh, So Iris's task is to ingratiate herself with great Aunt Ursula in the hope that she will be left Aunt Ursula's um, extremely sort of big and sprawling country estate in Spain. And uh, she's also supposed to do a certain element of spying in that she's um, required by her parents to see who her rivals might be, who else might be quite close to Ursula and might be in the running uh, to inherit the estate, which is called Bosca de Nube. Bosca de Nube. We've got... You know, well, here we go. Iris was 12 years old and perfectly capable of filling in the blanks. Her parents were concerned that great aunt Ursula might be going soft enough in the head to accidentally leave her entire estate to an unknown Spanish boyfriend. She wasn't really sure what she could do about it, but she would try. Besides, 10 days in Spain would be far better than being stuck in the middle of the final school term. At least that's what Iris kept telling herself. So we've got a very independent character there, um, and we've got the eccentric aunt uh, Ursula. Where are we? Rushing down the marble steps was a woman dressed in a flapping shirt and a pair of old suit pants held up with a length of rope. Her black hair swung in a sharp bob around her face. She had a sparkly gaze and sprightly air. So a rather eccentric uh, character. Deeply eccentric. Deeply eccentric. But now we start to get into this location of Bosque de Nube. If, if Spain wasn't um, sort of different enough, there's something about Bosque de Nube. Yeah, it's an unusual place and that becomes apparent to Iris fairly fairly early on. Not only is her great aunt 
really quite batty and eccentric in her behaviour, extremely bohemian and erratic, uh, but also the, it, the estate itself is quite erratic. And Well, we start sort of conventionally. Um, so uh, you saw the forest on the way in? It goes for miles, a tangle of thorns and ferns, ditches and watchful trees, rotting leaves, a swamp or two. It's a lovely place to go rambling. So I'm just wondering what the reader's expectation might be at this stage with that sort of setting. Well, I mean, woods are always magnificent fairy tale type settings. We all know that strange creatures and perhaps strange people live in the woods and the forests, that they're often magical places, mysterious places. They're often dangerous places, especially for young children to go venturing in. So immediately there's the suggestion that, you know, Iris is actually quite scared of the woods at the first. She's a bit of a fraidy cat, really, in general. And so one of the things she has to learn in her time in Spain is to develop a bit of backbone and develop her own um, courage. So we immediately know, but I think sort of without, you know, getting too deep on a bigger level, you know, the forests are like the, the subconscious, you know, the, the hidden parts of the mind, the, the place where we put things that we don't quite want to look at. In, yes, and in a way, in some ways... It's conventional, it's danger and all of that sort of thing, as you say, the subconscious. But then this world starts to change. Now, I'm just wondering how far I can take this because we then get a description of that forest. Um, So the trees looked like big uh, storm clouds. I'm just trying to find where I've got that quote. Um, a poet, yes. The trees looked like big storm clouds, she murmured. Indeed, said Aunt Ursula. A poetic image, Iris. But that's not where the name comes from. Several times a year, a thick mist forms in the valley and hangs low in the trees for days. The trees look wonderful, wrapped in puffs of white mist. So where... Well, actually, we should actually say what Bosque de Nube means. Yeah, it means forest of clouds. Forest of clouds. Yeah. But what's happening then with our perception? with that description and that poetic description. Well, I mean, I I like the fact that Iris actually is already becoming more creative and inventive in that she's trying to search why is the estate called the Forest of Clouds. And so the reason she comes up with is actually that the trees look like dark and to her quite threatening storm clouds. In fact, the real meaning is this weather phenomenon that happens in the area where these sort of really quite thick mists roll in and then you know, Aunt Ursula is quite glib about this and even, you know, says something very throwaway that sometimes children go wandering to the mists. And, of course, Iris becomes very anxious to be like, they do come back, don't they? Um, But, of course, once we hear that, we sort of know that we know the expectation is raised in the reader. We know at some point, you know what, Iris is going to have to go into the forest. She is going to have to encounter the mists and, and sort of undergo this kind of rite of passage where she has to prove herself. Indeed. But also then it's the way we look at things because with that poetry, again, it's sort of an expected mode. We can describe things in a slightly different way. But then things bend again. And this could be jet lag. Um, So, for example, uh, she's in the house, but when she grabbed onto the banister, she felt a slither and then a tickle on her palm. Something whipped itself around her wrist and pulled tight. Iris drew her hand away. The banister was made of dark red wood and had carvings of twisted vines and leaves. Iris paused until her breath returned. It was just an ordinary banister. She waited a few more seconds, and yes, that's all it was. But she still climbed the stairs with a racing heart. 
What's starting to happen? Strange things start to happen around the estate and in the house. And at first, Iris um, distrusts her own perceptions of reality. Uh, She believes that she is really tired, really jet-lagged. She assumes that she is starting to feel things and see things because she's jet-lagged, when in actual fact it um, it becomes apparent to her that the estate is strange. The house is strange and things happen that would not be able to happen in the normal outside world. In fact, reality gets twisted and bended um, in a way that she's never experienced before. Another one was when the sheet music started to yeah. move. Yeah. What was happening there? So um, Iris walks into a beautiful sitting room, really ornate, full of gorgeous art and furniture, and she sees a woman at a piano playing, and she has sheet music in front of her, and as she watches, she sees the notes start to move around and crawl on the page and realises that they've become ants and are crawling around on the sheet music. And then she she blinks and the illusion is broken and their musical notes once more. So many a child learning piano for the first time would have come across that experience probably. <laughs> it's actually, um, that, that scene and many scenes in the book are based on real-life paintings. Um, so I'll probably get the name of this painting wrong, but it's a Dali painting and it's called something like Six Images of Lenin and there's funny little Lenin heads um, along the keys of the piano and there are ants tumbling across the music and onto the floor. And I've used paintings by Magritte and, and other painters as inspiration. Well, then this gets us into the world of surrealism. So what I was trying to build and lead up to was we've got the conventional uh, tropes of adolescent fiction, the foundation, and then things slowly start to bend and change to a point, and we can't actually then go into other images because that would be telling too much about the, the novel and the story. Other forms of reality start to change, so we're going to change slightly and go to surrealism because this is what you do. What are you doing here? I think it's okay to give away a little bit about the plot at this point. Like I I don't feel too bad about giving a little bit away. Um, Aunt Ursula's brother was a very famous surrealist painter called James Freer. And uh, everyone assumed that he painted surreal images and he was a great surrealist. But what Iris sees at Bosque du Nube is suggesting actually that he was just painting what he saw around him. That in fact he was really a realist painter in that he wasn't creating these images purely out of his imagination, but he was painting what he saw around um, him at this this magical estate in mm. Spain. And actually, for the listener, we, we, we could almost try and describe surrealism. I mean, you mentioned Dali before. There are some of his famous images. What was happening in some of his? Can you? Is there a oh, favourite? I think you know Dali is, is the most famous surrealist. So I think for me, the the most iconic image when you say Dali is is perhaps the melting clocks. Clock, yeah. For me, for me, it's the melting clocks. But I know mm. other people um, have have different images. Um, and, and I did a lot of research into the Surrealists and went to a lot of um, exhibitions. But another element of the story came in when I realised that, in fact, there are a lot of great female Surrealists that we don't know about um, that aren't as well known as the male Surrealists. And so I started to think differently about the character of Aunt Ursula and started to wonder whether she, in fact, had a hidden creative side that she hadn't been able to really foster and develop fully as a young woman, you know, in the 30s and 40s, um, and that she somehow was managing to to um, live her creative dreams on this magical estate in Spain as well. Mm. So, And it's having the vision, I and mean, this is where 
Ursula and Iris connect because they can see the magic. Uh, yeah. It's where others can't necessarily. No, Iris's mother had visited um, the estate previously 30 years earlier and had really not gotten along well with Ursula at all. And in fact, either, you know, didn't see it, just did not have the imagination to see these magical and surreal things happening, or perhaps had, had, it had been too much for her and she's sort of willingly forgotten what happened to her on the estate. It's never entirely clear, but not everyone can see the magic that happens there. But luckily the estate draws in quite a bunch of kooky and imaginative and creative and artistic individuals that love the magic. But what gets me is what then this allows, A, the writer to do, and B, the interaction then with the reader if you are starting to break those boundaries of reality, a magic realism, so to speak. I mean, there'd be challenges then in writing such things. Yeah, what were they? I think the challenge is knowing basically, you know, you talk about how, you know, reality bends and twists in this place and it was knowing how far you could bend and twist reality without breaking it totally and losing the reader's belief or losing the reader's confidence in, in what you were doing. Um, in terms of sort of coming up with these um, magical images that comes quite naturally to me I think I have a pretty skewed um, view of reality it's like magic realism to me is actually how I experience everyday life in general um, so that that's sort of not a problem I'm the kind of person that that often imagines strange things on the tram and, and laughs out loud like I'm I am quite like that naturally but in terms of describing them and and you know I would often get a very odd image in my head I think for me actually the hardest one was one of the very minor images in the book, and that was the image of this mattress-sized steak lying, this giant lump of raw meat lying over the banister and oozing on the carpet. I really, this this leapt up in my head, and I thought, oh, I really want to put that in. But when it came to describing it, you know you have to do a good job because you've really got to make the reader come with you quite a way. Yes. Um, well, this is part of the challenge um, in terms of... And you're taking uh, a 12-year-old reader in many ways. This is yeah. Iris, who's 12. Yeah. And so how were you able to do that, I mean, without necessarily having the pictures there so that there is a corresponding reference for the reader? I feel like a 12-year-old, the barriers between reality and unreality are still fairly thin at that age. They're just at the point where they're about perhaps to drop it a little bit in their teenage years and just become a bit more grounded um, and grounded in reality. But I feel like, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, you can still at 12 be a little bit loose with your thinking about reality. So I feel like a, a reader of that age can still come with you quite away with these fantastical and magical things that you describe. Well, there are artistic ways of achieving that because you've got that little exercise in the book of the exquisite corpse. Yeah. Would which you is, like to explain yeah. that? The exquisite corpse is actually a game that probably a lot of people listening have played and it's a, a drawing game essentially where you can have four people ideally and you um, one person draws the head of a creature and then just leaves a tiny bit of the neck showing and they fold the paper over so the next person can't see what they've done. Then the next person draws the torso, then folds it over and covers up what they've done and just leaves a tiny hint at the bottom exposed to let the next person drawing know where to take up. And then the next person draws the leg, legs and the next person draws the feet and then you un unroll it and you're presented with this crazy mixed up magical um, creature. So it's a, it's a type of, um, you know, creating a very random and un 
predictable and chance um, mm. artistic creation. Well, I've done that. Uh, pardon me for going back into teacher mode, but I've done that with writing. Yeah. And, and doing it in a class with a, um, a sort of sandpaper around the, the classroom where you start off with a topic and then you begin with a noun. Uh, well, you have a common focus like a dog. You begin with a noun like Rover and then you ask, fold that over, ask, pass the paper along. The next kid writes two adjectives to describe Rover uh, or whatever that noun was. Fold that over. Um, verbs, maybe three. Uh, fold over, pass along a phrase. And what is generated is often quite extraordinary. You've begun with a very formulaic process, but often, sometimes, the outcome is quite artistic and imaginative. Yeah, it loosens up the it loosens up people's creativity. I think people. Um, you know, relying on chance, randomness, accidents um, can often lead to great artistic results. I think very often we try to control these things and be very directed um, and planned and structured about creating art. But the Surrealists believe that they actually should employ um, automatic techniques, random techniques, chance techniques, tap into dreams, tap into their subconscious and, and kind of loosen up um, their approach to creativity in order to create very surprising works of art that they might not have been able to create through really controlled conscious means. But that brings us to that quote. Now I've lost the page, Jen. What was the quote about the dreams? The dreams. I'll do this one. Dreams are not wants. They are objects or comforts. Dreams are the sneaky messengers of your mind. Dreams are the squirming pit of worms you refuse to look at while you are awake. Dreams show you everything you are hiding from. <laughs> Sounds very dramatic when it's read out loud oh, like no. that. A shiver. That's like Ursula speaking, and she is a melodramatic individual. Like she is very theatrical in her her delivery and the types of grandiose statements that she makes. And she's an you know an avowed surrealist from from way back. Well, look, I was speaking with Leanne Hall about her book, Iris and the Tiger, and this is where I've got to ask you, Leanne, because I know you're involved with the School of Life. Yeah. And that's all about philosophy. So how does that fit into this book? I think it probably fits in in quite a a sneaky messenger sort of way, actually. I, I, I try not to be too thinky and too intellectual when it comes to my writing, Um. I would say no doubt all the the sort of reading and teaching I've done with a school of life has crept into my work that that philosophical angle to things but it's never never a conscious thing that I do in in my writing but I no doubt would be would be influenced by it. I think one of the difficult things I found in this book was I had to um I had to get across some quite sophisticated concepts that might not normally be discussed with kids of that age, you know, surrealism and and perhaps the more philosophical um, side to things. So I had to find uh, a way in and find the right way of talking about um, these sort of things in a way that children would find interesting, exciting, palatable. Um, There's a lot of surrealism that I had to leave out for that age group, Mm. the real sex and death side of surrealism. You know, just I left by the wayside for this age group. I I would have done it very differently if I was writing for a teenage audience. But for this kind of reader, you know, I had to make sure it was kind of pitched at the right level for their age group. But I also think that, I mean, I remember being 12 and being very opinionated, um, often seeing the world very black and white. I was enjoying sort of flexing some new brain muscles and having opinions about things. So I think children... 
that age actually can be quite abstract and can be quite philosophical in their approach. Well, I liked it with um, Iris reviewing the friendship she had with the, the girl that she knew from oh, Violet, another yeah. flower name, from kindergarten, and how she saw Violet not wanting to play games anymore. You know, sort of move that, that whole aspect of moving away from that friendship. Yeah, I mean, to, to grow up, we're taught, you know, to become a teenager, we're supposed to leave those childish games aside. We don't, it's a great disappointment to Iris that no one plays in year seven anymore. She's come from grade six where, you know, I can remember playing, you know, um, bat tennis and, and down ball and tiggy and giant games of gang, gang chasey and playing, engaging in a lot of imaginative play. And that is supposed to cut out immediately at high school. You're supposed to drop your dolls drop your imagination and, and grow up. And, and Iris is really quite disappointed by that. And her friend Violet has really moved on, has really moving towards becoming a teenager and is not concerned with play, is starting to worry about other things such as boys and clothes and her social life. Um, so it's quite funny that Iris is taken to a place where play is not only um, tolerated, but it's actually encouraged and expected by Art Ursula that she'll engage with Bosca de Nube in a really, really playful, experimental type of, of way. And the other point is, at this age, it's parental obedience. Now, she's come here, she's doing exactly what her parents want, but then by the end of the book, she's actually questioning her parents' values. Which is actually really a scary thing to do um, at, at that age. She does, she does grow to realise that perhaps she doesn't agree with her parents' aims in getting their hands on Aunt Ursula's estate. She is forming her own opinion about what she thinks is right and wrong. She's um, developed a great love for the estate and Aunt Ursula, her friend Geordie that she meets there, and his father Marcel. She's really grown very fond of the estate, so she she becomes quite protective of, of the magic that she's found there. And when she realises that perhaps her parents' motives are not mm. so mm. Um, sound, she really has to question. And she's, she is a very obedient child. She's, she starts the book and she doesn't really feel she gets much attention from her parents and this is a way of being a good girl and getting their attention if she can nail this mission that they've gifted to her then um she really wants to be in their good book she wants their approval um she wants to be closer to them but the you know the fact is by the end of the book she realizes that they're not these perfect individuals that necessarily have her best interests at heart so that's a bit of a tough lesson to learn but but she rises she rises to that lesson i think there's also this notion of the challenge she has within the book as well, which which ties it together, and that's uh, locating the paintings or locating the setting yeah. of the paintings. Yeah. And there's one in particular, Iris and the tiger. Yeah. She can't find the tiger. No, she really can't. So Iris realises that there is, in fact, a painting called Iris and the Tiger. It's um, Great Uncle James' most famous painting, and... It features his wife, Iris, and there is no tiger in the painting, despite the fact that it is called Iris and the Tiger. So, first of all, Iris Chen Taylor, um, the 12-year-old Australian girl, is completely mind-boggled that 
there is a painting that's got her name in it and that she might be named after the painting. It, it really sets her apart. She's not feeling particularly special. All of a sudden she finds out that there's actually a painting by great uncle James called Iris and the Tiger. She really identifies very strongly with a painting with Iris Freer, uncle James' wife, who's depicted in the painting, a quite sort of mythical figure in herself, a very brave nurse who um, worked with the international brigades during the civil war. And she becomes obsessed with this tiger as to why would you call it, why would you call the painting that if there is no tiger in the painting and so she sets out on a, a, a proper quest a good old-fashioned quest to find the tiger but there is a tiger in the painting I don't want to go too far down there but it becomes a matter of perception in some ways yeah how the, we look at things the tiger turns out to be not perhaps what she was initially looking for i felt i had to deliver the tiger i think a reader would throw down the <laughs> throw down the book in disgust if i hadn't um hadn't made it obvious what and who or where the tiger is but it's it's goes back to this point of surrealism of breaking the bounds of reality and therefore uh, allowing yourself to look at things in different ways. Yeah, a little bit like a magic eye picture. You just have to kind of soften your focus and let your mind drift and you might all of a sudden see something that's been in front of your face the whole time. I mean, if I can give the listener a bit of a hint, if you look up um, the tiger iris and Google it, you might get a sense. But there are things like tiger lilies and all sorts of things um, and sort of challenge yourself to see why they're named that way might be I'm going to have to I haven't I'm going to have to look that up and Tiger. see what the the trippy these trippy flowers look like trippy yeah. <laughs> trippy flowers that sort of gets us into a whole Well there are of... there are some trippy flowers in in the in the book Yeah There's, well yeah. yes uh, yeah. and and a whole landscape that is um unique shall we say and the focus of um the surrealism um but you're also then um a book seller I am. Yes. So how does this fit with what you've seen with the other books in this genre and such like? Well, when you work as a bookseller, I guess you see the real coming and going of books on a daily basis. I mean, there are so many books come and go in the matter of of one month. So I I just really enjoy knowing what's out there. Um, I think I'm a writer because actually primarily I'm a reader. I'm a very, very keen reader from from a very, very young age um, all the way up to, to where I am at present. So, you know, I think I'm a writer because I greatly admire the books that I read and there's fantastic Australian writing out there. Um, so being around that all day and even just handling, you know, these these books that contain these fantastic words and, uh, and often by Australian authors, um, it's incredibly inspiring and, and you just get a feel for what's out there in that age group. I read a lot um, for, for this slightly younger, you know, upper primary age group and I also read a lot um, of teenage fiction because I also have written two young adult books as well. Um, and, and this age group, I think, is almost a tweeny age group. You know, people have asked me, you know, is this, is this young adult fiction like your first two books or is this more middle grade fiction? Um, and, and I do see it as sitting pretty like, um, pretty much in the middle, in between. And, and that's why I wrote it is I wanted to write about a girl who was really at that in between age. She's almost ready to leave childhood behind, but not quite. And she's not quite ready to enter her teenage years. And that can be a really, discomforting place to be but it's also challenging the way they think and how they see and perceive things which gets us back to surrealism yeah (laughs) yeah so it's been um 
a very interesting read, uh, a novel way of looking at things. The book is Iris and the Tiger. The author, Leanne Hall, and it's from Text Publishing. Well done. Mm. As you can see, you had David and I both captivated. Oh, thank you so much. 